Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the TM288 Historical Theology 2 podcast. Hope you're all doing well. I've had a bit of a location change. A certain five-year-old I live with decided to graffiti all over my workstation in his room last night, which just goes to show you you shouldn't put a home office in the same place as your five-year-old's bedroom. Things you learn during the quarantine. Well, today I'm hoping you all learn some new content as I discuss some about the history of Christianity in Asia. Before I do that, I want to give you a reminder of the upcoming due date for your research paper on the 24th. I tried to remind you by email, and of course there's information on Canvas about this. Uh, But if this catches you as a surprise, reach out to me. I'll see what I can do to help you get caught up. Um, And if you need any help, make sure that you send an email as well. The history of Christianity in Asia is actually far older than you might think. Um, We have some interesting phenomena in our time period because some very ancient groups of Christians that we talked about in Historical Theology 1 reemerge in a larger way on the scene in Asia in the 15 and 1600s, where they meet the Uh, much modified versions of Catholicism that they have split off from several centuries or even a millennium before. So if you're following along on your PowerPoint 6.2, we will be looking at examples of this interaction in three different regions, in Japan, in India, um, and briefly in the Philippines. Unlike in India, which we'll be speaking about in a moment, Christianity had never made its way to Japan uh, prior to the colonial era. In 1549, Francis Xavier was the first Catholic missionary to Japan. He was a member of the Jesuits, which, if you'll recall, is the monastic group that developed during the time of the Reformation and became the center of the Catholic Counter-Reformation in its educational efforts, attempting to prevent the spread of Protestantism. Soon the Jesuits expanded and included missions into their work, and Xavier came to Japan an experienced and veteran missionary who had already done work in several other regions of Asia. Now, the Jesuit method of missions is notable. It began with the study of culture, attempting to understand the local society. In the context of Japan, this meant that Xavier earned scholarly credentials in order to be able to evangelize the upper classes. Xavier was uh, faced with a dilemma. He could either take on the attire and the lifestyle of the commoners, or else he could try and make headway into the elites in culture. If he sided with the commoners, he might convert convert higher numbers, but he would surely convince the elites that the religion was not something for more sophisticated persons. On the other hand, if he sided with elites, it might be some time before the religion trickled down to the masses. In this context, Xavier decided to target the elites with the hope that eventually Christianity through the work of the elites could be translated into Japanese culture where it might become more understandable. In 1593, after decades of missions work by the Jesuits, Franciscan missionaries arrived, and they opposed this Jesuit method of enculturation, believing that several important doctrinal compromises had occurred. Therefore, they adopted anti-Jesuit missionary practices, which ended up being anti-Japanese in many respects. 
In response to this Franciscan arrival, Christianity was gradually transformed in the eyes of the cultural elites until it was viewed as an enemy of Japanese society. This resulted in anti-Christian persecution. Portugal had been given dominion over all of Asia and Africa in an agreement with the Pope, which divided the non-European world between the naval powers of Spain and Portugal. As a result of this, the Portuguese bishop in Goa was sovereign over all Catholic missions in the Pacific, and he often used his responsibilities not only to push missions, but also to push Portuguese political and colonial interests. In combination with the new Franciscan anti-Japanese position of missionaries, the Japanese government responded in 1614 by banning Catholicism. In response, moreover, most of Portuguese traders, uh, missionaries, and diplomats were ex expelled from Japan. Only the Dutch were allowed to remain and maintain a single trade port in Nagasaki. As a result, there is extensive persecution of Christians in Japan. And this was actually supported, believe it or not, by Dutch Christians since they were Protestant. They believed Catholics were heretical and so therefore did not intervene in order to dissuade persecution. Of course, it's unlikely that any intervention on their part would have succeeded anyway. So what did persecution look like in a Japanese context? Well, if you're following along on PowerPoint slide 6.2, you can see an image of what's known as a fumi. It is an engraved depiction of Jesus Christ on the cross, which would be placed upon the ground, and Japanese Christians would be challenged to trample the fumi in order to show disregard for Jesus. This was thought to prove that they were not Christian or that they had renounced Christ. Japanese Christians who refused to trample the fumi would then be executed. And this persecution has actually remained a focus of Japanese Christianity into the modern era. Uh, so you may be familiar with the Shisaku Endo book known as Silence, which I believe is one of the best Christian novels ever written. And it's written by a Japanese author uh, addressing these actual persecutions. It was also made into a movie directed by Martin Scorsese. So you may want to check that out and add that to your quarantine watch list. It raises some pretty significant theological questions that are worth discussing. Well, as a result of these persecutions, Christianity was never fully driven out of Japan, but it also never flourished and thrived. By the 1800s, some trade had resumed um, in the middle of the century, but still there's limited missionary incursion into Japan until 1865, uh, when finally the Catholic Church is allowed to build a church in Japan. They named this church the Church of the 26 Martyrs, after some notable Japanese martyrs, though the, numbers of, the total numbers of Christians killed have been estimated to be as high as 200,000 individuals. That's what makes it so surprising that upon building this church, a number of Japanese Christians actually emerge from hiding. It turns out for several centuries, Christians had been living underground with underground churches. They knew Catholic prayers, they had been baptized, and they knew the basics of the Christian story, but by and large, they did not have much theological knowledge or official organization. 
They were recognized as validly Catholic because these Japanese Christians acknowledged the Pope, venerated Mary, and had clergy who were celibate. So th thus they were thought not to be Protestant. What's interesting, though, is they had variant forms of baptism. Some baptisms were rightly done. Some villages said the right formula but gave the infant water to drink instead of bathing the infant in water. There were 10,000 Japanese Christians during this era who decided to officially link with Rome, while an estimated 100,000 Japanese Christians remained autonomous. This is the first of several examples of uniquely Asian variants of Christianity coming back into encounter with Western Christians from Europe through their missionary endeavors. Unfortunately, this interaction in the 1800s was short-lived because by 1868, persecution began again uh, and lasted until 1875, leading to the deportation of Christians to parts of the empire far away from Nagasaki. It was not until the 1900s that you again see significant overlap uh, between European and Japanese Christians, again focused in Nagasaki. By 1912, there were an estimated 66,000 openly Roman Catholic Japanese Christians, and Nagasaki was the largest Christian community in Japan, which of course makes it uh, somewhat ironic that the Western world, believing it was dealing a blow uh, to the Shinto Empire of Japan during World War II, actually bombed out Nagasaki, the capital of Christianity in Japan, something that is often not taught in your historical books. So I have on a slide there actually an image of Japanese Catholic Christians holding a Eucharistic service in a bombed-out church after the dropping of the atomic bomb in 1945. It's a bit of a whirlwind, but it gives you a taste of what Christianity was like in Japan during this era. And it shows the stubborn resilience of Christianity in the face of persecution that we saw in the ancient world in a Roman context persisted in the more modern world in a Japanese context. Next, I'd like to speak with you about Christianity in India. Christianity in India involves an encounter between old and new variants of Christianity, between Western and Eastern versions, but it was a surprisingly different interaction. I have to go back in time well before the time span of most of what we've considered in this class uh, to the time of the 200s. Now, legend claims that it was actually the Apostle Thomas who brought Christianity to India, but unfortunately, we lack adequate historical information to determine whether or not this is true. What we do know, however, is that Christianity was certainly present by the 200s, where it had arrived from missionary effort from what is today Syria. And what's interesting is as time goes on and we reach the Christological debates in the late 300s and 400s, the Syrian church actually ends up becoming associated with a variety of Christology that is known as Nestorian. If you took Historical Theology 1, you may remember that there was conflict between the Patriarch of Constantinople, who was recently rising in power in Christian church affairs in the Roman Empire, and the Patriarch of Alexandria, known as Cyril. Cyril preferred to speak of Christ as having a single nature, Nestorius was concerned about the blending of humanity and divinity and initially raised a critique about using the phrase theotakos, or God-bearer, 
of Mary, the mother of Christ. You see, Nestorius was afraid that this would give the impression that the divinity of Christ actually originated in the womb of Mary, and so he preferred to use the language of Christotakos, the Christ-bearer. His intentions here are good, but the specifics with which he tried to carry them out were flawed, and often led to the impression of a Christ that was not adequately united between the human and the divine natures. The debates that arose from this led to a council in Ephesus and a later council in 451 at Chalcedon, which resulted in the doctrine of the hypostatic union, which claimed that the two natures of Christ, human and divine, were joined in the person of the Son, without mixture and without confusion. They persisted to be two continuous distinct natures throughout Christ's entire ministry and up to this very day, given that he retains his human nature as he intercedes at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Unfortunately, that position did not satisfy the extreme views on either side, given that it was something of a compromise. So Nestorian Christians refused to sign on to the Council of Chalcedon and continued to emphasize more plurality in Christ, while Coptic Christians separated and continued to affirm a single nature rather than a dual nature. Coptic Christians remain to this day the dominant Christian group in Egypt, and we mentioned last class their continued influence on the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. Well, Syrian influence continued from the Syrian church to what's known as the Martoma church in India. So India remained relatively Nestorian in its theology, even after Muslim conquest, when by and large the Indian church lost contact with Western churches in regions like Syria. So what's interesting is when Roman Catholic missionaries arrived in India, they discovered a very ancient form of Christianity there and a form that had been deemed heretical for centuries from the Catholic standpoint. So initially when missionaries arrived, there was an emphasis on trying to bring the Martoma church into conformity with Catholic principles. This was particularly evident in the year 1599 at something known as the Synod of Damper, where there was an agreement that seemed to imply there would be unity. Eventually, though, there was resentment against the strict enforcement of Catholic protocol by the Jesuit archbishop who was present, and this led to a revolt by Archdeacon George, the leader of the Martoma Christians, which resulted in the majority of Martoma Christians leaving Catholicism. Martoma Christians now recognized the more global nature of Christianity and sought to reestablish their connections with a global church though they no longer viewed Catholicism as the ideal ally here. In fact, they ended up re-establishing connections with Syrian Christians, who remained under the influence of Nestorian ideas. This was only the first of several splits that resulted from this contact with the Portuguese world, and today we can actually point to Mar Thomas Christians who practice distinctively Indian liturgical styles, but who are affiliated with Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Protestant, and Syrian branches of Christianity, a distinctively ancient and Indian flair 
to a number of more modern Western denominational divides. So what about new converts in India? Well, by and large, there were significant barriers to mission in the 1500s and 1600s. Portuguese were known to be cruel to native populations of territories that they hoped to make colonies. Muslim conquests in the region made it militarily difficult for Christian missionaries to be active in many parts of India. The fact that there were no colonial settlements by the Portuguese was a benefit to many native Indians in terms of not being oppressed and exploited in the same magnitude as places in Africa and the Americas. However, it did have the impact of there being fewer direct contacts between native Indians and between uh, visiting European settlers. All of these factors converged to lower rates of evangelism during this era. Where do we see evangelism being successful, though? It's not in the high castes. High castes did not want to convert so as not to lose their social status. Up to this day, but even more so in centuries past, various social groups in India were divided into castes, where the castes were thought to bestow certain privileges and rights and even responsibilities. The caste system would determine what parts of society you had access to, what jobs you could work, even what religious functions you could become a part of. Converting to Christianity was thought to reduce your standing in the caste system. So someone who is in the upper echelons of society would not want to risk their privilege by becoming Christians. On the other hand, a number of low castes had actually been persecuted by higher castes in India and were much more welcome to embrace a religious system that did not endorse the caste system itself. One example of this is the low caste known as the Paravas, or the Pearl Divers, who were one of the lowest castes in the society at that time. They converted en masse to Christianity, perhaps in part admittedly for political reasons, as their conversion ensured some support by the Portuguese military. Hindu and Muslim leaders continued to watch with amusement as Catholics and Mar Thomas Christians disputed with one another about the basics of the doctrine of the Incarnation, something that Muslim theologians thought was ridiculous and impossible. Protestant missions in India were much slower to get started and take off, not only in India, but in fact in much of the world. Protestants are not known for their international ministry and evangelism and missions until the 1800s, though there were some exceptions in English-speaking colonies uh, where some missionary work was done associated with the Great Revivals in the 1700s. In India, a similar pattern holds. In the second half of the 1700s and first half of the 1800s, the British East India Company had colonial power over much of India, but it was resistant to missionary activity because it worried that this activity would be bad for trade. Of course, this had in fact been the case uh, with Japan several centuries before. The Baptist William Carey was convicted at this time that Christians were not active in spreading the gospel overseas. He was heavily criticized, but was finally able to found what is known as the Particular Baptist Society for Propagating the Gospel Among the Heathen. Initially, he couldn't find anyone to send as a missionary, so he finally decided to go himself, landing in Calcutta in 1793, despite great cultural resistance. By his death, Carey had translated parts of the Bible into 35 language, 
languages and inspired what's known as the Great Century of Protestant Missions in the 1800s. It's at this point that we finally begin to see some Protestant conversions in places like India. So that's Japan and India in their Christian experience, both of which involve some interesting interactions between Eastern and Western Christianity variants. One more region that I want to point to uh, is one where Christianity took off much more extensively in terms of numbers and where it remained consistently Catholic uh, without a substantial enculturation until a much later era in history. This is the story of Christianity in the Philippines, which I can only briefly mention. The Philippines is the only Asian country prior to the 20th century where Christianity had a major foothold, and even where the majority became Christian. An individual named Legasapi led a settlement and conquest of the Philippines. This was a very robust colonial effort in comparison with what we see being undertaken in India and with what we see in Japan, where there was never any colonization by Europeans. This mass settlement led to the translation of the Bible and the coerced resettlement of Filipinos into new villages. There are a number of historical atrocities here that time prevents me from describing in detail. However, despite these atrocities, we actually see successful evangelism occurring in the Philippines. Now, let me be clear, the success of evangelism does not in any way justify the colonial atrocities, but it does stand in juxtaposition with it as a rather ironic and unexpected twist of history that we can only attribute to the working of the Holy Spirit. It's certainly not the case that any unique virtue that was present among the colonists led to any such conversion. Missionaries first arrived in the Philippines prior to colonialism, and it should be noted that some of the hostilities from the Japanese toward Christian miss missionaries arose from the fact that these missionaries were soon followed by colonial settlers. Well, having named the fact that there was not an ideal place, uh, not an ideal context for conversion, I can still say that by 1750 there were already 900,000 baptized Catholic Christians in the Philippines. And the Philippines remains today one of the nations in the world with the highest percentage of Christians. Were we to spend much time on 20th century history in this class, we could share how the successes of the Philippines extended beyond that nation into another number of other Asian nations that are now majority Christian, including not only South Korea and East Timor, but if projections are right, possibly a number of other small Asian nations and Pacific islands within the next two centuries. For now though, I've covered everything within our time scope that a single lesson allows us to discuss. And I hope this glimpse into global Christianity might entice you to want to study it more. If that's the case, let me end with a, click, a quick plug for one of my classes in the fall, which is Introduction to Missions. Two aspects of this class that will be heavily emphasized are the relation between economics and missions so that we don't recreate the mistakes of the past by harming populations we are trying to evangelize. Colonialism is dead, but certain economic neo-colonialist forms are still linked with missions today, and we need to stop that. A second emphasis, though, 
is recognizing the work of the Spirit that God is doing in these global Christian communities that we might better partner with local Christians, instead of suffering through some of the same conflicts that we've seen in the context of India, for example. So if that sounds interesting to you, I'll see you in Intro to Missions. If not, the lecture's over, and I wish you all the best during the rest of your week. Until next time, I hope you're well.